You are in for a treat today because we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 12, that is not only powerful, it is arguably one of the most humorous chapters in all of the Bible. And uh, if all goes today according to plan, that power and that humor will simultaneously manifest themselves. So uh, we're going to begin with prayer and uh, smile, Carolyn. This is, the, this is the happy time of the service. This is the time. You frown earlier. All right, let's pray. God in heaven, we love you. Be with us now as we open scripture. May you open our hearts. We pray, Father, for the work of the church, for the people of the church. Father, not everybody here is all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with big smiles. Father, there are members and families and individuals in the church that are struggling. And Father, there are those of us maybe that are doing well, but we have family members or friends or people that we know used to attend this church, and they're struggling. Father, we live in a broken world, and uh, today we're here to celebrate that you have made us whole, that you have cleansed and recreated and put us back together. But Father, help us to be aware that there are many, even perhaps in this room right now, that are broken apart and they feel hurt and sad, maybe even lonely in a crowd of people. Today, Father, my prayer is that you will minister to them, not by the words of a preacher or even the words of the musicians, the songs, but Father, by your Spirit. May your Spirit do something supernatural today. Come into hearts, come into lives, come into families beat back the strongholds of the enemy and make this church a safe, happy, hopeful, healthy place. It already is that, Father, but make it tenfold what it is now. We love you and thank you, God. We're looking forward to a great presentation today because we're going to be in Scripture. In Jesus' name, let everyone say amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Eli, I'm going to turn this on and hope for the best. All right, great. Acts chapter 12, and uh, I want to thank uh, Pastor Dan and Pastor Jared for doing a great job walking us through Acts chapter 10 and 11. The last chapter that I had the privilege of being up here for was Acts chapter 9. We looked at the conversion of Saul. And uh, today we're in Acts chapter 12, but we're going to spend just a little bit of time in Acts chapter 11 Not a lot of time, because I know Jared covered some of this, but there are some crucially important things that set up Acts chapter 12. Now, let me just sort of give you a a feel here, maybe maybe like a, a sort of a visual as to where we're at in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, in many ways, is the pivot point, the fulcrum on which the book of Acts hinges, right? We are now to a major transition place. In fact... If you can think of the book of Acts as a play, if it was presented as a, as a play in a theater, this would be the close of the first scene, right? Acts chapters 1 to 11, things are winding up for the first scene. And then we're going to take our intermission, we're going to come back, and it's going to be the second half of Acts, and we're going to move into a, a kind of a different perspective. Let me just kind of create that for you. The first third of Acts is built primarily around a guy named Peter, Right? What's his name, everyone? Peter. And, and Saul, Paul, has just made sort of one quick appearance in Acts chapter 9 where he was converted. But the first third is largely Peter. The last two-thirds uh, are largely Paul. In the first third of the uh, book of Acts, Peter, uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, spends a lot of time writing about the twelve. 
the apostles, the twelve, the apostles, the twelve, the apostles. In the latter two-thirds of the book of Acts, he spends almost no time talking about the twelve and the apostles, and all of it talking about the, the church. In fact, the word church itself is used far more in the latter part of the book of Acts than in the earlier part. There's a transition that's taking place here. Luke seems to know that, that he is purposefully and intentionally crafting church history, this part of church history. He's drawing part A to a close, and he's launching a new part, and Acts 12 is that teeter-totter. We're, we're, you guys call it, what, a seesaw? A seesaw. So we're going from the first third into the second two-thirds, or it might be easier just to think of the first half and the second half of the book of Acts. Okay, now, look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and here we encounter the transition verse. If you were going to point to a single verse that was the pivot point of the book of Acts, it's Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. It says, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Now you will remember that it's all the way back in Acts chapter 8 that there was a scattering that took place, and the whole church was scattered, and then we had sort of an interlude, Acts chapters 9, 10, and 11, which was the conversion of Saul and the story of the conversion of Cornelius. Now it's like Luke has picked the storyline back up. He's reminding you where we actually are in the stream of church history, and he says this is about the time of the scattering surrounding the persecution of Stephen. Then he says in verse 20, But some of them who were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and I love these guys. These are some of my heroes in the whole of the Bible. We don't know their names. We know basically nothing about them. But what it says is, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, again, nameless and unknown to us, who, when they had come to Antioch, when they had come where, everyone? Antioch. Now, there are two Antiochs in the New Testament. There's Antioch in Pisidia, which is modern-day Turkey, and there's Antioch in Syria. This is Antioch in Syria. Antioch in Syria is a large city. Josephus called it the third city in the empire behind only Rome and Alexandria. It would have been at least 500,000, perhaps as many as a million people. And Antioch was, was not only a large city, the third in the empire, it was also the most cosmopolitan city in the empire. Let me sort of paint that picture here. Antioch was known as the jewel of the east, right? This is what it was referred to, the jewel of the east. And there were Persians there, there were Indians there, there were people from all over the greater uh, Mediterranean world. There were even Chinese people there, people from far lands. It was a wild with, with different smells and different looks and different people and different languages. It was a cosmopolitan city. Right? Not unlike maybe Sydney today or San Francisco. Some of these cities that are very cosmopolitan. Not just homogenous. Not just uniform. It was a big, cosmopolitan, happy city. Now it's very interesting it says that these people that came to Antioch. I'm in verse 20. It says they spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Now the word Hellenist there simply means the Greek-like people. There is debate among the scholars as to whether or not these are Greek-speaking Jews or these are just the Greeks. I think that the evidence suggests these are the Greeks. This is wild stuff here. This is radical stuff because unlike the people in verse 19 who continued to preach exclusively and entirely to the Jews, these nameless, unknown, wild, renegade, revolutionary preachers, they went to this cosmopolitan city in Antioch with Persians and Indians and even Chinese and all other uh, 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 nationalities. They start preaching 
to the Greek-like people. That is to say, in a Jewish mind, non-Jewish people. And notice what it says they preached. It says they preached the Lord Jesus. What did they preach, everyone? The Lord Jesus. Now, keep your finger right here in Acts chapter 11. Keep your finger there. And just flip back to remind ourselves. Go to Acts chapter 8. Just a quick flip back to Acts chapter 8. I think you preached Acts 8, didn't you, Daniel? Was that you or Jared? You remember? That was Big J. That was a good sermon. That was a really good sermon. I remember it now. Look at Acts chapter 8. It says, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen... And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church. Hey, that's what we were just talking about. Which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, as for Saul, he wasn't converted yet, so he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. Now look at verses 4 and 5. This is key. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere... Three words. Those that were scattered, they went everywhere. What three words? They were preaching the word. Right Now, this is largely the laity. This is not the apostles. They remained in Jerusalem. The scattered ones went everywhere doing three things, or three words. They were preaching the word. Now, what were they preaching? Look at verse 4. Look at this. Verse, four, or verse 5 says, Then Philip went down to a city of Samaria. Philip, what did he preach? He preached... Christ to them. So this is key. Absolutely important. When an apostolic preacher, when a, a New Testament preacher, when a first century preacher opened up scriptures, the Old Testament, and began to preach, they were preaching the word, but they were preaching Jesus. They were always preaching Jesus. In fact, there's a four instance of this right in Acts chapter 8. Stay in Acts chapter 8. Jump down to verse 35, and this is the story of Philip speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Stay there. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, what did he preach? He preached Jesus to him. All right, flip back to Acts chapter 11. So here's these nameless, faceless, largely unknown disciples to us. We don't know who these guys are. They're from Cyprus and Cyrene, right? Heroes, absolute heroes, revolutionaries show up in this cosmopolitan city of Antioch and they start preaching, not just to the Jews, which is what most people were comfortable doing. Socially, culturally, psychologically, they felt really comfortable in a Jewish setting, right? But outside of a Jewish setting, many people began to feel nervous. But these people from Cyprus and Cyrene, they said, man, stuff that. We are going to preach to anybody that will listen. A Persian will listen, we'll preach to him. A Greek will listen, we'll preach to him. An Indian will listen, we'll preach to him. A a Chinese Chinese person, whoever will listen. And they start preaching. But what were they preaching? They were preaching Jesus. Now, the way that Luke sets up the book of Acts, and here's kind of an interesting thing about the book of Acts. Both Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, are written to a guy named what? Does anybody remember what that guy's name was? Theophilus. Theophilus. And scholars have wondered, who is Theophilus? Why is Luke writing to him? What's the story? What's the story behind the story? And there are a lot of different sort of opinions or perspectives on what, why Luke wrote first Luke and then the book of Acts. But one of the sort of more intriguing ideas is that Theophilus was a proconsul or a lawyer for Paul in Rome. That, that, that literally Luke is writing the history to turn the history over to a man named Theophilus who will stand in a Roman court and defend Paul. It's very interesting because when you read the book of Acts, 
there's all of these legal objections, right? Like Paul comes into a legal situation and he says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. And Luke makes a big point of that. He talks about the, the unfairness of the, of the Jewish leaders and the, the basic law-abiding nature of Paul and his associates. It's almost like he's setting forth a legal case, writing to Theophilus and saying, hey, my client is innocent. My client has done what's right. So when we read the book of Acts, what we see is Luke is sort of crafting what might well have been a defense of his client. You see these two sort of competing ideas of growth and opposition. Growth and opposition. This is the story of the book of Acts. The church begins to grow, and then there's an opposition. The church begins to grow again. The word of God is spreading, and then there's an opposition. And the way that Luke tells the story, even when the gospel, the message is momentarily stopped in its tracks, right? And we're going to see a great example of that in just a moment. The gospel keeps prevailing. It keeps spreading the message cannot be stopped. The messengers are occasionally killed. We're going to see that here in just a second with James. The messengers are occasionally imprisoned. We're going to see that in just a moment here with Peter where he's going to be arrested. Not for the first time, not for the second time, but for the third time. But the way that Luke tells the story, this message is unstoppable. The message is going forward. And the message, as we just saw there a moment ago, when these people were preaching the scriptures, when they were preaching the message, what were they preaching? They were preaching Jesus, and not just some generic Jesus. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. You Okay. Now, let's check this out. This is, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to press on here. Okay. We're back in Acts. I want that slide right there. All right. We're back in Acts, chapter 11, and verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now remember, these are non-Jewish peoples. This is wild. This is radical. This is cutting-edge stuff to be preaching to non-Jews. Verse 22. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Word has seeped down to the, to the church in the south of Jerusalem, and they've heard, hey, there's something going on up in Antioch. There's a church up there, but it's not a church of, of believing Jews. There's a church up there that has Indians and Persians and Chinese and people from the larger Mediterranean area. Something's going on, and the church is like, hmm, let's send Barnabas to go check it out. Now, we don't know much about Barnabas in the Bible, but I tell you, what we do know about him is of sufficient interest and is sufficiently persuasive and compelling that I told my wife, before I ever was married, I knew that I was going to name my first child Barnabas. True story. So Violetta will tell you. After we found out she was pregnant, I said to her, sweetheart, I've got some news for you. She said, well, she had some news for me, first of all. She's pregnant. Then I had some news for her. I said, hey, look, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl or not at this point, but I have a feeling it's a boy, uh, mainly because I couldn't conceive of being a dad to a, a girl. So I just thought, surely God wouldn't curse me with that. <laughs> hey, no, listen. Not, uh, not because I wouldn't love to have a girl, but because I think I'd be a terrible dad to a girl. I'm just not soft and cuddly and sweet and I'm just a dude. I know I'm just digging. I'm just going to keep digging a hole here. I'm just going to see how deep I can get this. I mean, who would want a girl? Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's in my notes. All of that's in my notes. Okay. So anyway, I say to Violetta, if it's a boy, we're going to name him Barnabas. And what do you think she said? She's like, oh, what a great name. 
oh, yeah, let's go with... Actually, her exact words were, no child of mine is going to be called Barney. <laughs> now, I don't know if you got it here in Australia. Did you get that big, stupid, purple dinosaur? Okay, so right when I said this, it hadn't occurred to me that the shortened version of Barnabas was Barney, but like Barney was at the height of his dinosauric popularity. And Violetta, she just put her foot down, and you know, this will tell you a lot about how our home runs. My son's name is Landon, right? And my next son's name is Jabel. There is no Barney. I don't even think she'd let me name a dog Barney. Well, here's the point. You say, well, why would you want to name your son Barnabas? Well, because of this, we don't know basically anything about this guy. Basically nothing. But what we do know about him, most of what we know about him is contained in verses 23 and 24. It says, and when he, this is Barnabas, who's traveled up to Antioch, when he had seen the grace of God... He was glad and encouraged those with purpose and with one heart that they should continue with the Lord. Verse 24, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and many people were added to the Lord. I mean, can you imagine if that was was the summary of your life? Right? Just imagine the summary of your life, Blair. When you come to the end of your life, what's on your tombstone is, Blair was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and many people was added to the Lord. Would you take that right now? Who wouldn't take that? Who in this room wouldn't trade any possible thing that this world could could offer you if at the end of your life it could be said, she was a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and many people were added to the Lord? Are you with me, yes or no? I mean, what what a story. This is basically all we know about him. And when Barnabas shows up to this new, wild, Gentile, cosmopolitan, this is the first international church. When he shows up there, it says that he saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? Do you want to know what the grace of God looks like? Look at the person that is immediately next to you or the person behind you. Do you see that? That's the grace of God right there. Look, that's the grace of God right there. And that's the grace of God. And that's the grace of God. Where's Toby? (laughs) The grace of God is all over Toby. You know, when when Barnabas shows up there, he sees Indian believers, he sees Chinese believers, he sees Turkish believers, he sees Cretan believers, he sees Arabic believers. He's like, whoa! When I look in this place right here, I see the grace of God all over this place. Don't you? And I love what it says. That's how I'm feeling right now. It says, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Woo! I tell you, I love Barnabas, even though we don't know much about him. He was an encourager, and Jared preached about that last Sabbath. Verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year that they assembled with the church, and they taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Well, why were they called Christians? Because you couldn't call them Jews. This term, scholars believe, was actually a term of derision, not merely a term of demarcation, but a term of derision. The people that won't stop talking about Christ Messiah, the Christianoi. These were called Christians. Verse 27, I love this. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. Now, Agabus is the grumpy prophet of the book of Acts. He only shows up twice, and both times he has bad news. Here's his first time he shows up. Agabus shows up. Everybody's happy. Everybody's glad. The church is prospering. The word of God is growing. And watch this. Agabus shows up. He stood up and proclaimed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world and that it would happen in the days of Claudius Caesar. So this guy just kind of walks into the midst of this gladness 
And uh, the picture that Luke paints is that Agabus shows up. The only other time that Agabus shows up later in Acts chapter 21, I think it is, he walks in, Saul, uh, Paul is there, Agabus takes off Paul's belt, takes his belt off of him, if I can do that, takes his belt off, what am I going to do with that? Stick it in there. Walks over to Paul, takes the belt off of him, ties his hands up with the belt, like this, and then prophesies and says, you will be bound and led to Rome, and you will be killed. So this guy's a real, he's, you don't invite him to the party. Every time he comes to the party, he's like, oh, there's going to be a famine. It's going to be terrible, or you're going to be killed. I mean, he only shows up twice. He only has bad news to say, this guy. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Agabus, the gloomy prophet, walks in and says there's going to be a great famine in the land, this is key, and this goes right along with what Jeff was talking about, what Lyndon was talking about, all of those beautiful people that were standing here and Kev was over here. The immediate response of these people when they find out there's going to be a massive famine in Judea is not, oh no, Lord, how will we survive and make it through these difficult trials and times that are coming upon us? Watch their immediate instinct in reaction. Verse 29, Then the disciples, each according to his debility, ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The moment that they were made aware by Agabus the gloomy prophet that difficult times were coming, they didn't say, how are we going to survive? Their in initial and immediate and instinctive reaction was, how can we help those that are going to be worse off than ourselves? Can the church say amen? That's what the Adra appeal is about. It's about saying, how can we help those who are going to be worse off than ourselves? Right? Right? We think it's a rough, you know, the other day, a, an absolute tragedy happened in the Asherah home. This doesn't happen very often, but we ran out of milk. <laughs> Does this ever happen in your home? Have you ever tried to eat cereal with water? How many people have tried that? I mean, that is just, that's just a, a sliver sigh of death. Or worse yet, have you ever tried it with orange juice? It just doesn't work doesn't work. Apple juice doesn't, it doesn't work. Nothing works with cereal except milk, maybe yogurt in a pinch, but that's it. That's it. And we came into a crisis in my home because I was starving and I have a hankering for cereal. Because for me, every good meal finishes with cereal. You can ask my wife, right? It's like dessert. And the day starts with cereal and there's no milk. And I think this is a trying time. I'm telling you, there are people, and you know this, and I'm not telling you something you don't know, who are in a much worse condition than that. When the church found out after Agabus came in that a difficult, gloomy time was coming to Judea, you know what they said? How can we help? What can we do to help? They were going to be hit by the famine too, by the way. But their primary concern is how can we help others? Now, look at this. I love this from, from John Stott, his little book, message, The Message of Acts. The famine relief anticipated the collection which Paul was later to organize. He does this, when you read it in Romans, Paul says, hey, I'm coming through, I'm collecting some stuff for, for Jerusalem. He later says the same thing to the Corinthians, when I'm coming through, have your collections ready so I don't have to wait around for you to get it all organized. This famine relief anticipated the collection which Paul was later to organize in which the affluent Greek churches of Macedonia. Now, I want to remind you, these people don't have any cultural connection to the Jewish church. These are different people. These are different. They're not us. The affluent churches of Macedonia and Achaia contributed to the needs of the impoverished churches of Judea 
Its importance to Paul was that it was a symbol of, and look at what Paul actually says in the book of Romans. He says in Romans 15, 17, Gentile and Jewish solidarity in Christ. Christ, he says, for the Gentiles have shared with the Jews the spiritual blessings, a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish history, Jewish scriptures. And he says, therefore, you owe it to the Jews to share with them your material blessings. For Paul, this was a powerful analogy that the Jews have brought you the truth. The Jews have brought you the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Messiah. Now, your responsibility to them is to give what you can give. And they said, as soon as they heard from Agabus, oh, difficult times are coming, they were saying, how can we help? What can we do to help those who are a culture removed from us, a world removed from us, another situation removed? How can we do it? Now, we come to Acts chapter 12, which is the primary passage that we're looking at here, and this is where things get downright humorous. In fact, it would not be an overstatement to say that things get absolutely hilarious. This is what we've experienced up to this point in the book of Acts. There's been a series of major conversions, and they have included the 3,000 that were baptized on the day of Pentecost, the Samaritans that we just talked about briefly that were in Acts 8, also the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, Saul of Tarsus, major conversion in Acts 9, the Italian centurion Cornelius and his band that uh, uh, Daniel preached about, and then the mixed crowd in Antioch that we just looked at, the guys from Cyprus and Cyrene. Okay, so what it looks like is, in a way, if we've already mentioned here, the church is growing. The word of God is expanding. It's not just Jews that are becoming believers, and even some of the priests are becoming believers, but now Gentiles and, and people from all different walks and nationalities are becoming believers. So Luke is painting this picture, right? And then he comes to Acts 12, what we would call Acts 12. Of course, he didn't call it Acts 12. He was just writing his letter to Theophilus. And here in Acts 12 is the, the pivot point where he's going to bring the first chapter to a close, the first half, and advance the second half. And the thing hinges on this guy named Herod. Now, the Herod that we're going to encounter here is not the Herod that you're familiar with in the Gospels. The Herod that we encounter in the Gospels is a guy named Herod the Great. The guy that we're going to encounter here in Acts chapter 12 is a guy named Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the great, or was the grandson of, of Herod the Great. This guy, well, these, these Herods, they're easy to get mixed up, but they just loved to kill people. And part of the reason that they loved to kill people is that they were client kings or vassal rulers for Rome, right? They, weren't, they didn't actually have any, they didn't have any autonomous sovereignty. The sovereignty that they had had been given to them by Rome. And Rome basically said, hey, you guys are in charge of an area that the Romans called Palestine, okay? You're in charge of Palestine. Keep the Pax Romana, keep the peace, the peace of Rome. That was their responsibility. And so they had to, at times, have a heavy hand, And if there was any talk or any whisperings about another king, they would consider it as a personal threat or or an insurgency, and they had to stamp it out to keep the Romans happy. So they ruled kind of with an iron fist. Unsurprisingly, when we encounter Agrippa I here, um, let's see what it says. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hands to harass some from the church. Now look at what harassment looks like, verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, that's Peter, James, and John. Okay? That's Peter, James, and John. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Herod, to make his stamp on on Palestine, because he'd heard about these uprisings, he keeps hearing, and this is part of the real difficulty, everybody keeps talking about King Jesus. King Jesus? 
Who is a king Jesus? King? I'm the king of the Jews. That's what actually the Romans called him, the king of the Jews. Herod was the king of the Jews. And they keep hearing about all this, Jesus is the king of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so they bring in one of the leaders, maybe the leader, James. They line him up there, and they run him through with a sword. Verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to further seize Peter. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. Okay, so when he kills James, Herod's like, whoa, people like it when I kill these people. The Romans are happy. The Jews are happy. My people are happy. I'm happy, right? So if they were really happy when I killed James, I'll arrest Peter with full intent to kill him as well. In fact, you know that's what he was going to do. He was just going to stab him through with a sword, but he couldn't because it was the days of unleavened bread and the Jews, just like they did with Jesus. Wait, 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 not right now. We have to wait. You can't, you got to take him down because it's Passover. They would keep their rites and rituals. No problem killing people, but just you have to do it in the right way. You have to do it in the ceremonially correct way. So they're ready. They're perfectly happy for Herod just to go and kill Peter, just like he had done with James. But they said, wait until the Feast of Unleavened Bread is done. Now this is where things get Funny and powerful. Verse 4. So he had him arrested and he put him in prison and delivered him to the four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now I want to remind you again, this is the third time that Peter's been arrested in the book of Acts, right? He wasn't arrested here for a traffic violation. He wasn't arrested here for jaywalking. He's arrested because as soon as Passover's done, Herod is going to do to Peter what he did to James. He's going to stamp out this Christianoi movement once and for all in Palestine. Keep the Romans happy, keep the Jews happy, and keep the Pax Romana. Keep the peace of Rome. Verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer. What two words, everyone? But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week long. So let's say he was arrested at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He got seven days. So the next night, when the Passover is going to be over, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is going to be over, it says, when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping. Now, I just want that to just settle in on you there. What was Peter doing? He's sleeping. Peter knows what's happened to James. That's his childhood friend, Peter, James, and John. Peter knows what's happened to James, and he knows that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over tonight. And what is Peter doing? What's he doing, everyone? Do you know why he's sleeping? Because when you believe in the resurrection, if you're preaching the resurrected Christ, if you believe in the resurrection, death does not scare you. The, the dude is asleep. Peter was sleeping, and look at this. Not only was he sleeping, he was bound with chains between two soldiers, and the guards... Uh, were before the door, and they were keeping the prison, okay? Now, verse 7, check this out. Here's Peter fast asleep. You're going to find out just how sleepy he was in a moment. Verse 7. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. An angel shows up in the prison cell right at the zero hour, and a light shone in the prison. It must have been some kind of a supernatural light because it doesn't wake up the prison guards. It doesn't even wake up Peter. Look at this. I love this. He struck Peter on the side. This is some violent angel. Why does he hit Peter on the side? To wake him up. Do you got kids like that? I have two boys and one boy like that. Right? You try to wake him up, he won't wake up. You rouse him, you do the nice, the polite, the sweet thing. Uh-uh, doesn't work. You got to strike him on the side. Right? The backside, that is. Get your butt out of bed. Kaboom! Look at this, like Peter's just... 
You know, he's, what, what is he sleeping for? Has he got a big day the next day? <laughs> yeah, I got a big day tomorrow. I'm going to be killed. I got to be rested up for that. He's asleep. It says an angel struck him on the side and lifted him up. This dude's a heavy sleeper. The angel lifted him up, and, and you can just get this picture in your mind, because this is the picture. He's just like, mm. The angel says, hurry up, get up quickly. And the chains fall off of his hand. Now, Peter's no doubt, like myself, who loves to dream. I'm a dreamer. Peter thinks, this is a great dream. You ever have dreams like that? I have dreams like that where Violetta will go to wake me up, and I'll say, no, no, don't wake me up. I'm having a great dream. And if she, if she does, if she, if she doesn't wake me up, I'll go right back into that dream. Can you do that? I'll just dive right back in. So Peter's loving this. The chains fall off, and the angel said to him, I love this, put your shoes on and get some clothes on. Isn't this great? He's like bossing him around. Come on, we got to get out of here. So he did, and he said to him, put your garment on and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was in a dream. Okay, verse 10. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened, them out of, which opened to them out of its own accord. And they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed him. Get the picture in your mind. It's the middle of the night, and here is half asleep Peter standing in the street, wiping the sleeve from the... And when he comes to, he's outside of the prison, and there's no angel. Verse 11. When Peter had come to himself, that's Luke's way of saying, when he was finally starting to wake up, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and he has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people who just can't wait for him to be killed the next day. Look at this. So when he had considered this, I get the picture of him standing in the middle of the street trying to put it all together. You know how your mind's working a little slow when you first wake up? He came to the house of Mary. He's like, okay, where am I? Am I at, oh yeah, okay, I'm at Sixth and Union. Where does Mary live? Mary, Mary. Comes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, and I love this. The people were in there praying. Okay, so now get this. This is where Luke's humor just takes on. It's a whole nother level here. So the people are inside, and guess what they're praying for? They're praying for Peter's release. Oh God, please, because this is gonna be a debilitating blow to the church. James has already been killed. Peter's going to be killed, and this is going to be deflating to the church. And so the church is praying. Peter shows up at the door. It says, verse 13, And Peter knocked at the door of the gate, and a girl named Rhoda came to answer. I love the fact that he tells us her name. <laughs> like, they want to be clear. Like, hey, that was Rhoda. That wasn't me. Rhoda did that. So this girl named Rhoda comes. Verse 14, when she recognized Peter's voice. Peter's standing at the gate. It's Peter! Let me in, it's Peter. And Rhoda comes out, she hears a voice. She recognized Peter's voice, but because of her gladness, she's just like Barnabas, glad all the time. Because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate. She ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. So get the picture in your mind. Here's a sleepy, you know, just freshly broke out of prison Peter standing at the gate, knocking, calling. Rhoda goes out, hears the voice, and is like, whoa, Peter's at the gate. Doesn't think to let him in runs back into the holy people who are busy praying. Watch this. They come in, and uh, she runs out, and they said to her, verse 15, they said to her, you are crazy. Right? Because she's like, hey, you guys, Peter's standing at the door. And all the holy people are like, no, 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 we're busy praying. Leave us alone. We got, we're busy praying for Peter. 
But she kept insisting. That tells you that it's not like, it wasn't a quick convince. And now just put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's still standing at the door like, hello? I could get out of prison. I can't get into your house. Look at this. She kept insisting that it was so. And they said, oh, it's an angel. Okay, wait a minute. You're there busy praying for Peter's release, for Peter's deliverance. God, please, you can come through in a pinch. You can do this. We believe in you. A woman comes to the door. Hey, Peter's at the door. Knock it off. We're busy praying. No, really, it's Peter. No, it's probably just his angel. Look at verse 16. Now, Peter continued knocking. Peter's still at the door. He's thinking this is some kind of a cruel joke. When they had opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. Now, I got a question for you believers. Have you ever prayed for something and when the answer to the prayer came, you were surprised? Why? When I broke my ankle, shortly after I was getting converted, I broke my ankle. And I prayed that God would heal it. This is the short version. And he healed it. My, my, my broken ankle was healed overnight. Well, I had to go work at a vegetarian restaurant, and the lady that owned the vegetarian restaurant's name was Mary. Now, this was a huge miracle in my life. I'd been a believer for about six months. My ankle had been broken. It was the third time I'd broke it. I'd had the x-ray the day before. I was on crutches. I had an air cast, waiting for the swelling to go down. My ankle is broken. So I go in that morning. I wake up. My ankle feels fine, totally 100% fine. Swelling is gone. The bruising is still there, but I go to work. And when I walk in, Mary, who owned the restaurant, she needed my help. She, need, she didn't have a lot of workers. She, I said, Mary, my ankle's healed. I, I, my ankle's healed. And she's like, great, can you cut the carrots? <laughs> like she was a believer. She was a strong Christian. But, but for her, it, this stuff happened to her all the time. She just expected that God would do great things. So she wasn't surprised when it happened. But these people, when they see Peter, they're like, whoa, God answers prayer. They were astonished. Verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. So obviously they were loud. Like, Peter! What, Peter? And he's like, shh, 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 shh. I don't want to get thrown back in prison. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James. Now, this isn't the James that had just been killed. Peter knew about that. This is the other James. Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And that verse right there. 12, 17, where it says he departed and went to another place. We don't hear from Peter. We, don't hear, we only hear from Peter one more time in the whole book of Acts. That's it. That's Peter's exit. Exit stage left. It, all it says is he went to another place. Probably got out of there. I would. He'd been arrested three times. You know, it's time to leave. Right? So he leaves. Verse 18. Now get this scene in your mind. Then it was, then as soon as it was day, there was, and I like this as classic Luke understatement, there was no small stir. There was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. I can, can you see this in your mind's eye? They wake up. Huh? You're like, where's Peter? Scratching their you know, collective heads. Where's Peter at? Verse 19, but when Herod had searched for him and had not found him. It reminds me, I think it was a children's story that Melissa told a few weeks ago where she was talking about, wasn't it Melissa? She was lost and her, her dad's like, look in the back. They're not there. Check the van. Like, where's he going to be? You know, where's she going to be? They didn't find him. It says, when they had searched for him, verse 19, they examined the guards and commanded that they should put the guards to death because Herod is bound and determined to kill somebody. If it's not going to be Peter, it's going to be the people that were watching Peter. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. Okay. The story here is an absolutely amazing one. 
And the story, look at this. Here we go. I love this. Ty Gibson said to me, oh, probably two years ago, and it totally changed the way that I thought about prayer. Just, we were just having a conversation, and in the course of that conversation, he just, these words just fell out of his mouth. He said, prayer is an act of war. And that has forever changed the way that I think about prayer. Right? Prayer is like a nice thing. It's a sweet thing. It's a necessary thing. But prayer is an act of war. That's what was taking place here. The church constantly prayed for Peter, and there was an intervention. Right? The church has, the, the, the world has its weapons, but the church has its prayer. The church prayed. They weren't going to go break him out of prison. That wasn't an option. They didn't have the military might with which to meet the Roman power, but they prayed. They prayed, and prayer is an act of war. Verse 20, in a stroke of poetic, masterful brilliance, look at how Luke closes this chapter. It opens, Luke, uh, Acts 12 opens with, with Herod on a rampage, killing James, preparing to kill Peter. He's on a rampage. Look at how Acts 12 closes. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is just a little background information that Luke is giving us. When he came to... And they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, we don't have any idea who this guy is. He's just the king's personal aide and their friend. And they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So Luke's just giving us a little background information to tell us what was taking place. Now this story from verses 21 to 24 is a very unusual story in that this very same story occurs in the writings of Josephus. This is one of the extra-biblical confirmations of the basic history of Luke. So what we're reading here, Josephus tells us happened. Now read what happened. Verse 21, on a set day, Josephus says it was on a festival day, Herod was arrayed in royal apparel. Josephus says that he was arrayed in silvery garments, these bright silver reflective sequined garments, so that, says Josephus, when the sun would come to just the right place and the right angle, it would strike the garment of Herod and he would look like an angelic divine figure. Right? This guy's a complete, you know. Arrayed in royal apparel, he sat on his throne and he gave a speech. He's giving a speech, this guy. And the people kept shouting because the people need his food. So they're worshiping him like he's some kind of a god. He's providing them food in Tyre and Sidon. So they said, this isn't the voice of a man. This is the voice of a god. And Josephus says that he liked the sound of that. And he didn't, he didn't stop them from speaking. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. I love it when you call me a god. Look at what happens. Verse 23, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus says that he, in the middle of the speech, came down with, with, with intense intestinal pain and he, went, he was, maybe had an appendix verse, we don't know, but he was rushed into a room and he died the next day of an intense, Dr. Mahanu could tell us what had happened to him, I have no idea, but he got some intense intestinal pain and he died, but look at verse 24. What does it say? But the word of God, what did it do? It grew and it multiplied. So look at this. Look at here at the screen. The chapter, this is from John Stotts, the message of Acts. The chapter, chapter 12, opens with James dead. Peter is in prison, preparing to be killed himself. Herod is on a rampage, triumphing. But Acts 12 closes with Herod dead. Peter is free, and the word of God is triumphing. Can somebody say amen? 
Indeed, one cannot fail to admire the artistry with which Luke depicts the complete reversal of the church's situation. And it was all attributable to, what word am I going to say right now? Prayer. Take out your connect cards if you would. You have a connect card in front of you there. I want you to take it out. Take out your connect cards. If you need a connect card, you don't have one, the deacons are standing by to give you one. Do you have an extra one there, Ross? Everybody, take out one of those connect cards there. I got a series of appeals I want to walk you through. Take that out. Please put your, if you need one, raise your hand. The deacons will get you one. Raise your hand nice and high. There's one. There's several. There's one in the back. Thanks, guys. Over here. Laurel, on that side. There you go. There it is. Down here. Thanks, guys. All right. First of all, put your name, email address on there. The necessary information so that we can get a hold of you. We'd love to know who you are. Are you a member, a visitor? Let us know. Now look it over to the right side there. I got five appeals based on Acts chapter 12. And the first one says, I believe that God is bigger than my circumstances and I choose to trust him no matter what. All right? If that is resonant with you, I want you to check that. Right? Because... When Acts 12 opens up, the church is faced with some dire and difficult circumstances, but God changes those circumstances. And Luke shows with with artistry and precision and, and poetry the complete reversal of the church's seemingly impossible situation. Just this week, I was visiting with a few church members, and there are church members, there are people in this very room, and you know who you are, who are facing difficult situations and circumstances of various kinds financial, medical, familial, work-related, emotional, right? It's happening in this very church. And if you say, you know what? I see that God is bigger than my circumstances, and I'm going to just trust him. Check it, number one. Number two, like Peter, I am too often unaware of the work that God is doing around me, and I want to be woken up. I've got to tell you, church, I've been here now since March, absolutely loving it. I'm just thoroughly loving being in the church. But I will tell you, there are some, some people in the church that are never going to be happy no matter what anybody does. The good news is, is that myself, Pastor Jared, Pastor Daniel, and the leadership team is not here to keep everybody happy. We're here to keep God happy. Right? So we're hoping that you will join us and that we will join you in striving to keep God happy, not to satisfy every little need and complaint and situation of every possible person that could come up with something. We believe that many of those things will begin to fall away as we put the focus on Jesus Christ and on his righteousness and on the work that the church is called to do. Amen? I want you to know God is doing a work here. And will there be things to sit on the outside and make complaints about and point fingers at the pastor and say, oh, the pastor, absolutely. If you want a list of my negative things, you call me up, I'll tell you five things about me that you don't know. They're all bad. So so you'll have some ammunition if you want to talk ill about me. I know some stuff on Jared. I don't know as much on Daniel. I'm working on him. But if you need some dirt, I can get you dirt. You want dirt on the elders? I got dirt on most of the elders. So if you want something to complain about, I can give you something to complain about. At least then it will be based in fact. Okay? But if you want to say, you know what, who cares about that? I just want to know, what's God doing? I don't want to be asleep to the work that God is doing with sinful, fallen, broken instruments, people just like Peter, ordinary people, people who are fast asleep when God is hard at work. Is that you? That's me sometimes. 
So you check that. Number three says, I need to pray more and I choose to pray more. I need to pray more and I choose to pray more. You know who you are. I need to mark that. Get me a pen. I'm marking that one. Number four, I see there is no need to fear the Herods in my life and I choose not to. What can Herod do? Don't worry the Herod, don't worry about the Herods in your life. Never mind the Pharaohs. Whatever those things are that seem to spell impending doom, the Herod of financial distress, God is in control. Okay? The Herod of your children who don't seem to want to have anything to do with God or the things of God or Scripture or the church, God is in control. I don't know what the Herods are that you're facing. But I want to let you know that Luke crafts the book of Acts in such a way to let us know that the Herods end up at the end of the day done and dusted and God's church continues to advance. The word of God is multiplied. And finally, the last one says, I want to be a part of the word of God increasing and multiplying in my area and in my community. You say, man, I I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the work that God is doing. I tell you, Pastor Jared... Myself and Pastor Daniel were over the moon with the turnout that we got to the Bible work training. We had like 90 or 80 people turn up for that. 50 people signed up to be uh, community uh, Bible workers. Huge. That, that exceeded my expectations, I'm embarrassed to say, by at least double. You got, I was so proud of you, so proud of your attendance. And if you say, man, I want to be a part of that, check that. Just this week, next Sabbath, next Sabbath, we're going to have our first small group leaders orientation. That's a big one. On the far right, it says, I would like information about receiving Bible studies. I would like information about being baptized. I would like information about joining the prayer ministry team. We have a prayer ministry team that operates in this church. Lance is in charge of it right now, Lance Hooper. And uh, we are serious about prayer. We're passionate about prayer. There's even a place on the back for prayer requests. Right? So my appeal to you today is to respond not to the preacher, not to the pastor, and to our programs, but to respond to Jesus. And if you feel like there's something here that you can support, something that you can get behind, something that you can say, hey, I want to be a part of that, man, that would thrill my heart. But more importantly, I think it would thrill the very heart of God.